Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper, and Alexi the Greek is um, on vacation in Greece, so it's just me today. But uh, and apologies for my froggy sounding voice. But here I uh, have with me um, Carl Bayer, a famed uh, Twitter personality who who is not, uh, <laughs> to be clear, NBA superstar Allen Iverson. So don't yeah, get confused I, on that. I should point. state that up front in case anybody thinks I sound like him or anything. <laughs> um, but Carl's got a, a paper that just came out for the People's Policy Project, which is um, the the uh, it's called the Global Green New Deal. So it's basically taking the 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 fairly brutal logic of climate change and really thinking about what that would actually entail in an um, international context, what would really be needed uh, from the United States to actually help the rest of the world get their, you know, carbon house in order. So um, maybe, Carl, I thought we could start by going through, you know, what, what your read of the the uh, studies on future emissions pathways and what that tells us about what rich countries need to do versus what developing countries need to do. Yeah, so um, we have a pretty good idea at this point about um, what future contributions will probably look like. Um, as I mentioned in the study, the developing world is already putting out about 60% of current carbon emissions. Um, and we're going to be responsible for about 90% of the growth of emissions in the future, um, or they will, rather. And it's it, the reasons for this uh, are pretty easy to understand. We have already emitted a lot of what we're going to emit uh, in the course of development um, over the years. You know, whenever you're industrializing and building your factories and your power plants and your roads and everything, you emit a certain amount of carbon. And some of that's just upfront. And then when you're done, you're not emitting so much. Um, there's additionally the issue that wealthier countries uh, have the money and the capacity to decarbonize um, right now. A lot of them have already begun. Um, and so the combination of those two things means that they are putting out much less than the developing world uh, where you have um, you know, people who are just now building coal plants, uh, you know, actively uh, building them as we speak. Um, that's, that's the big thing. Um, you still have deforestation everywhere, um, you know, people building cities and roads and everything you can imagine that all contributes to uh, the carbon production. Um, and so that's the big danger is that no matter what we do here in the United States, uh, if we don't find a way to curb uh, emissions abroad, then that's not going. The problem is not going to be fixed. It's eventually going to catch up with us. Um, we could go. We could get to zero emissions, and our carbon output would eventually uh, still be climbing up to present levels, and then pass that. So we've got to do something. Um, yeah, it's not enough to just clean our own house. We actually have to take active urgent measures to fix the problem in the rest of the world as well. Yeah, the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the U.S. today is only about 15% of global emissions, right? And China now emits more than twice as much as we do. Yeah, China's, China's uh, the major emitter at this point, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you've got you know, the developing world, which is gradually with some uh, backsliding in Australia and the U.S. sort of tr at least hesitantly trying to come to grips with climate change. But then you mm -hmm. have the rest of the developing world, which is sort of starting to or is somewhat a ways up on the traditional 
fossil fuel uh, based development ladder. And if they follow mm. the uh, the you know the the United States or European pathway all the way to the top, then we're fucked, basically, right? Yeah, and you have it's it, like I should stress it's not just you know what you think of as direct like it's not just building coal plants or things like that. Right. You have you have all kinds of little problems that come up. For example, you have uh, in India or in China as the general population gets wealthier, they want to start eating meat. Um, that's a thing that happens, and of course. Uh, Meat, meat consumption is much more carbon intensive than, uh, you know, consumption based on rice or on grains or something like that. So you have all of these interrelated problems uh, that's contributing to this very, very big problem that's building in front of us right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, you've got you've got a calculation in here about mm-hmm. like what you know what the rich world b- broadly should be sending to the mm-hmm. the de- uh, developing world by That's right. by yeah but by some method or another and how i guess first of all what's that number and 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 how did you like how did you decide on the um the the US's share of it that's a that's a good question. That's actually that ends up being one of the key questions that you have to uh, grapple with here. So there, there's actually there's been a lot of work done on this on uh, sort of climate finance in the developing world and how um, how it would need to proceed. There's a lot of different variables that are in the air. So you have questions like uh, how. Uh, how quickly are things going to develop over there? Um, how much is climate change going to ramp up? Uh, one of the very the huge variables here is how much private investment can you count on? Um, just a lot of different balls in the air. And so what happens is you have um, all, a whole different class of economic models that people create that they're very interdisciplinary because they're combining the climate science with, uh, you know, sort of economic models of how the development would have to proceed, uh, things like that. Um, and some of them are more optimistic than others. Some of them are just based on different assumptions than others. Uh, you know, some of them assume more private investment than others. There are all kinds of different ways of calculating this. Um, so what, um, and I've been following this stuff for a while. If you look at my website, you can see, um, me mentioning it. I've been, I've been in a state of near panic about this for a long time. Um, but over the years back, back in, you can see like me writing about this in 2015 and back in 2015, my estimate was smaller than it is today because the estimates that I've been coming across, have uh, been getting bigger. Um, it, that's that's the other difference. Uh, over time, as the problem gets more serious, it seems to me like the cost estimates have been going up. Um, yeah. So well, and it's also isn't it the case that uh, you know that's been four years of of not declining but increasing emissions. So it makes the mm-hmm. the the trajectory that you have to follow even steeper and therefore more expensive, right? So that would raise a price tag too, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, a point a point that always has to be stressed. So think about this. Um, back in the original when they were uh, first sort of putting together the Green Climate Fund in the UN and they're sort of haggling over um, how much should be invested. Um, and one of the uh, the G77, their original ask was for $400 billion. Now, that number comes from them sort of doing their own models and doing their own calculations back then. And some of that, you know, is based on the climate science back then. So we're already back to 2009 looking at climate science that was published as of 2009. But then you have to remember that if it was published in 2009, that means that it's been going through the publication and the peer review process forever. And then 
So you're stepping back even more years. And then you have to bear in mind that a lot of that research and a lot of that models is based on even older data. So today, when we look at that 400 billion figure that the developed world was asking for, that's based on data from well over a decade ago. It's not just four years. It's much longer than four years. Um, and so, yes, you have this other variable here where you have um, sort of increasing seriousness of, uh, you know, scientists becoming more and more. I mean, not not they've been concerned for a long time, but uh, the models have been less optimistic, I guess you can put it that way, than they were before anyway. Um, so you have all kinds of different models to choose from. Um, and you have different sources. You have like the World Bank putting out a number. You have uh, the World Economic Forum putting out a number. You have uh, the UN putting out their own numbers. Um, all all these kinds of different groups are putting out their ideas of how much it would cost uh, to uh, sort of – do green development in the developing world uh, in a way that prevents or uh, offsets climate change. Um, what I did looking through here was I made a couple of what I think are conservative assumptions. Um, one assumption that I made was that um, a lot of the funding models call for investments that increase over time in the coming decades. So, for example, here we say the ask in our paper is $2 trillion, uh, or yeah, $2 trillion every year for uh, development. Um, but the model that this number was based on does not stop at $2 trillion. It actually climbs up to $6 trillion. Uh, by the end of the century. So by the end of the century, we should be paying $6 trillion to the developing world. Um, I just made the very, very conservative and possibly dangerous assumption that uh, we can start by asking for the $2 trillion and then hopefully over the next 100 years, we can ramp, ramp up funding. Um, but this is... A small ask, not a big ask. I could have asked for six trillion. I'm saying let's start with two trillion and work from there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so right. that's what. That's an example of the a kind of conservative assumption that we've made. So you're saying there's there are reasons why we shouldn't um, rely on private capital to step in here and get the job done for us. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. I, I don't think this is very controversial on the um, left or among socialists or really even among liberals for that matter. Uh, you know, that we've been relying on market solutions to fix this problem for a long time uh, with various degrees of seriousness. But, you know, we've known that climate change has been happening for a while. Um, and so they tried all kinds of, you know, market tax incentives and – uh, all kinds of schemes to try to uh, fix it. And the basic problem here is that capital really does not have much of an incentive at this point to do anything about it, uh, in part because the climate change is hitting the developing world the worst. Um, and also in part because, you know, it can profit off of disasters. Um you have situations like uh, New Orleans or New York City a while ago uh, with, you know, these are climate change problems uh, when hurricanes are flooding entire cities and capital can make money off of that. Um, it's not a huge it, – it, it's not a huge problem for them yet. I think it would be eventually, but at this point they can sort of ride it out and not worry too much about it. Um, maybe pick spots and look for places to profit off of it. So there are perverse incentives involved. Uh, 
I think that number so number one, just as a matter of practicality, I don't think that you can rely on the market to actually preemptively fix this. I think that what would happen, what a lot of um, scholars and people who are in a position to talk about this would say is that the market is going to wait until climate change becomes seriously disruptive uh, before they start taking action. Um, so you have this practical reason not to rely on them. Uh, and you also have, I think there's sort of a moral or ethical argument here uh, that we we have a responsibility to do what we can through the state to directly fix this problem ourselves. Uh, we can't just sort of passively hope that somebody else does something, that some private actor decides that they can find a way to incorporate this into a business model or uh, decides that they want to cure this out of the goodness of their heart through philanthropy or whatever. Uh, I don't think that it's right for us to stand by and hope that they take care of it. So um, I think that the better stance for us at this point is for the government to take the lead. Um, I could see this conceivably becoming a situation where the private sector this actually incentivizes the private sector to step up and do something about it just because they don't want the government uh, taxing them so much or doing whatever you would have to do to raise this money. Um, so part, part of this is if you have the public sector take the lead, it sort of gives us leverage to pressure everybody else to do something about it too. But ultimately, I don't want to depend on that. I don't think that's the right approach here yeah yeah you wouldn't want to rely on you know this it's like it's like it you know you start up your investment in the and and um suddenly the you know private businesses start swarming into solar panels or whatever then that's cool and you can back it off a bit if you want but you certainly don't want to put all your mm -hmm. eggs into that basket um yeah yeah so so you got this number two trillion sort of conservative estimate, mm -hmm. and you say the U.S. ought to be responsible for its share of the OECD uh, GDP, which is about a third, 34 percent, so yeah. 680 billion yeah. a year. And mm -hmm. and you've got various yep. funding mechanisms to, to, to raise that uh, money. And so can you, can you run through those options for us? Yeah. Um, so... Basically, this was this was a uh, sort of the most intensive part of this uh, project was figuring out how to finance it. What's the appropriate way to proceed with that? Because um, you the the actual the dollar amount for how we want to invest in that that's not really hard to come across if you look at of the different sources and stuff like that, it's sort of the lower range is maybe in the one trillion. Um, and then, you know, you get into some astronomical ranges where we're talking about like $10 trillion, but that wasn't very hard to um, decide on. The hard thing here was to try to figure out a way that we can finance this that gets around what called the Donald Trump problem where when Donald Trump withdrew from the Paris Agreement, he also very loudly uh, withdrew from the Green Climate Fund. And this was one of the few moments where the Green Climate Fund actually got some serious press and people were actually talking about it for a change, which you don't see that often. But uh, he, you know, in his Rose Garden speech, he brought it up and he, he openly said this is a redistribution scheme, uh, giving billions away. Um, and he's right. Uh, and we should embrace that. Uh, he's, he's absolutely right when he says that. Uh, but you do have people like Donald Trump. You do have all the climate deniers in the United States. And you even have people in the Democratic Party who will sort of admit, yeah, climate change is happening. 
but they won't acknowledge the actual financial burden of climate change, what we actually have to do. And you have to deal with people like that too who might be tempted not to give as much as you need to give. Um, you know, so the story of climate change funding is uh, is you have – well, I mean it goes back to the Bushes um, where the, the first presidency really started dealing with the international issue. But even when you get into the Obama administration, the United States was very much under Obama in the middle of dialing down how much we were going to commit um, and – or how much – the Green Climate Fund would have to commit. The developing world asked for $400 billion. Uh, the figure that everybody eventually arrived on was $100 billion. Um, the U.S. pledged, uh, you know, it was in the, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was $3 billion or $10 billion. But in the end, Obama ended up giving about a billion of it before the Republicans basically cut it off. So you can just see time after time after time, it just gets chopped away and scaled down. Uh, and so the only way in my view that this works is if we get somebody in office who is really committed to solving this problem and you ratchet in the solution very quickly in a way that is very hard to roll back afterwards um, because you just have to assume just a matter of statistics that eventually we're going to get a Republican in office again someday. Or we're even going to get a Democrat in office someday who isn't as committed to this fight, who's a deficit hawk or something like that and who uh, it wants to cut the funding. So we're looking at different financing mechanisms, um, different ways that you can ratchet this in and make it very, very hard to roll back. And the original one, the one that I really like personally is um, – Basically, it's our option one, a one-time issuance of open market treasury bonds. Um, and what this essentially is, is it's just dumping money into the fund, uh, into the Green Climate Fund. It's, like, it's basically like handing the UN cash. And once you do that, there's no takebacks. Uh, it's difficult to imagine a way that we could retroactively say, uh, could you give us that money back or something like that? That's that's basically the analogy here um, of how that works. Um, we have a second option here, a one-time issuance of special is issue treasury bonds. And the way to – Think about this. We go into the details here in the paper, but basically the way um, I, I, I think that's more analogous to writing them a check uh, and saying, you know, so we owe you this much or in a sense, the way that this ends up working out is it's arranged in a way that um, these bonds mature at a rate that every once in a while the UN gets to say, OK, you owe us this much, you owe us this much. Hypothetically, the U.S. could just decide to default on these debts in these cases. But as we've seen during the past debt crisis and that kind of thing, it's not clear that, that we can even constitutionally do that. If the next Donald Trump decided they wanted to default on this, uh, it might he might just get shot down by the courts. He would have a very difficult time doing that. Um, but it's still not as foolproof as the first method. So that's why I don't like it as much. Um, there are some financial differences here too in terms of what it does to the markets and stuff like that. The big uh, problem – well, I'll, I'll get to the pros and cons of each of them shortly. I should get to the last one. The last approach is uh, mandatory spending. And this approach works like Social Security um, or other programs like that where by default uh, the Green Climate Fund would be funded unless we affirmatively defunded it. So in other words, uh, with sort of the way that we've been doing it in the past is you'll have like Obama – 
carving out a certain appropriation in the budget here, something like I believe that he took uh, $500 million out of the State Department budget uh, to pay for some of it. Uh, so, you know, just what happens is you have a president put this in the budget and then it goes through the normal process and Congress approves it. If Congress approves it, then you have the money, but you have to get Congress to approve it every time. And you have to have a president who's willing to put that into the budget and then sign off on it every time. Um, in this case, with mandatory spending, by law, they would have to spend it unless you took that out of the budget. So that's better than the status quo. Um, it's still not ideal because then you know then you can have a Congress that just decides it, it, we aren't going to pay for this and affirmatively. Uh, passes that into law. So all three options are better than what we have. Um, they're both sort of – I mean they're all guaranteed in different ways to ensure that uh, we're paying this reliably to the UN or to make sure more like the UN gets it reliably. But they all have different uh, disadvantages too. So um, – for example, you have uh, interest rate problems with the first uh, approach because basically what we're doing is we are just you know printing a lot of money at once and throwing it into the market. Um, here, for the option one, we would actually be investing ten point eight trillion dollars to cover six hundred eighty billion per year for a long time. So that's a lot of money to suddenly spend and you can just imagine all of the different effects. Um, option two, because it's sort of staggered over time, it minimizes those effects a bit. And then option three, the mandatory spending is just like any other spending program. So it doesn't have those same problems. So you're dealing with trade-offs across the board here. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I, a, a, a question I have because, you know, I'm sure the instant reaction that anybody reading this plan is just like, <laughs> you'd never get this passed. I mean, this is so like pie in the sky. It's mm -hmm. it, like, yeah, but I so I but on the other hand, like this is like we got to do something like this, something on this scale. Yeah. If we, I mean, the logic of it is inescapable. Mm -hmm. Would you think so? So, I had on the one hand, um, would you think it, it would be appropriate to allow, uh, you know, Americans to get some of the like maybe you could have a, a world development fund that was even bigger than the one you, su you um, mm -hmm. support, and then Americans could be eligible for some of those like grants and whatnot to, you know refurbish their businesses or homes, you know, just like mm. reduce their emissions and so on. You think okay. that would be a re reasonable idea? So, um, yeah, this is, uh, this is the, uh, one of the big political dynamics that comes into play here where basically you are asking <laughs> the U S to do something very, it's, it's, it's certainly self-interested in the sense that if we don't, prevent climate change, then we're all screwed. Um, but on the other hand, it, it certainly in the short term, you would obviously have Americans saying, hey, we're giving $680 billion a year. What are we getting for it? And all we can say is, well, here's what's not happening um, because right. you're doing this. And that's a hard sell. That's obviously a hard lift. Um, and, you know, and, Americans are kind of notoriously disinterested in what is going on abroad anyway um, unless it unless we are funding dropping bombs on somebody we're often not that interested in helping out with some of these problems so yeah I think that it's a massive lift and I'll say before I answer your question I'll say this is why I think that it's very important for this to be tied to the Green New Deal. 
rather than put off as a kind of separate thing, a separate problem that we deal with, a separate piece of legislation that we need to pass. Um, this needs – when we talk about the problem of climate change, we shouldn't be saying this is the domestic problem here and this is the international problem over here. They're both the same problem and unless Americans understand that, then what we're going to be tempted to do is we're going to be very tempted to say, OK, well, we fixed the problem in the United States. We're, we've put a lot of money into this. Good luck, everybody else. Um, and that's not a smart right. way of thinking about it, but I think that's how the politics would end up playing out. Um, so it is uh, – I, I see where you're going with this idea of um, sort of using this fund to also help American development and stuff like that. Uh, but and, and so what I would say is first, I do think it is very important to tie this to um, – domestic legislation that's going through. I think that if you put them together, they have a chance of getting through. I think that if you let this problem get bracketed off and separated into a separate problem, that it's a much harder lift and we're going to have a very difficult time winning uh, political support. Um, that said, for what you're specifically proposing, um, I honestly, I hadn't thought about this approach very much. I thought <laughs> it's um, I'm I, I'm instinctively a little skeptical, just because whenever I hear, you know, this is this has been um, the dominant approach so far to the international problem. People do talk about this a little bit. But every time we talk about it, we're trying to spin it in terms of American self-interests. So um, for example, you have Elizabeth Warren recently announced this initiative um, about you know, – it, it, it's, a, it's a Green New Deal initiative um, and it's ostensibly supposed to help with international development. But the way she talks about it is it's going to create American jobs – uh, it's going to uh, turn America into this big exporter and the Green New Deal language talks about this problem the same way. They talk about you know um, this leadership role for America and the Green New Deal making it the leader in exports and green technology and, and the whole thing is being sold to the US domestic audience in terms of what it can do for them. Um, I am – so I'm a little skeptical of that approach just because if we're constantly thinking about this in terms of our own self-interests um, exclusively as, OK, well, what can we get out of it? Then a lot of really perverse dynamics can come into play. Basically, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have something um, – Kind of analogous to what happened with the um, Marshall Fund where uh, you have the US putting money out there abroad and uh, – but it ends up in the hands of US businesses and comes right back to the US. Um, you're, going, you're going to have the situation where we have really helped ourselves out and – but we've put the rest of the world in this position of dependency. Um, and sort of taking advantage of the situation to benefit ourselves. And I think that part of taking responsibility here for a situation which we are largely responsible for and that we have created is acknowledging, um, hey, you know, we're going to have to make investments here that don't necessarily help us out directly. They help the problem with climate change, but maybe, you know, Maybe we're going to end up giving money to, um, you know, it, well, I wouldn't say it, to one of these low-lying island states uh, that creates jobs there, but it's not necessarily creating jobs for us. You have some, right. you have some schemes out there that I think are pretty wild. Where um, who is his name is escaping me? Our climate change candidate right now. What's his name? Jay Inslee. Mm -hmm. Inslee. So Inslee's big proposal 
uh, is it's sort of vaguely modeled after the Peace Corps. Um, they want to send people abroad and they're talking about doing, you know, these like expertise exchanges that are very big in the NGO world and stuff like that. Um, they have these they, they they have these ideas of fixing climate change by sending Americans abroad to help them over there uh, with the problems over there. And, you know, maybe there's a place for that, you know, particularly like when you're dealing with like tech issues and stuff like that, um, you know, there's probably a place for that. But if we're relying on that as a primary mechanism, it's grossly inefficient. <laughs> like it's just think just think about this. Instead of just paying somebody in China to do the work, we are paying an American to do this work, uh, you know, and we're paying for we're paying to send him over there to fly him over there. We're paying for his room and board. We're paying for all this stuff. That's just a grossly inefficient way, among other things, of doing this. And that means that a huge what's already a huge price tag is going to be even bigger. If if we try to solve this international development issue by routing all of the money inefficiently through the U.S., the price tag is going to be much bigger than $680 billion a year because a lot of that money is going to go right into American hands. So that's, that's where my skepticism of your proposal is coming from. As I've said, I haven't <laughs> thought, thought it through, but every time that I hear – a uh, let's fix international development by doing something that helps the U.S. I'm just instinctively skeptical because that often ends up being okay. We're going to be doing this much less efficiently than if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally see that, mm -hmm. but I don't know. It just it just seems like it might be a little easier to swallow, and especially you're talking about something that's like. What about two thirds, three quarters of the size of the whole Social Security program? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you kind of sweeten the pot, you know, and, and uh, uh, create some domestic constituencies, you know, I mean the 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 it was like the idea of the Marshall Plan, right? You give all these loans to wrecked European countries, and they use them to buy American exports. But mm -hmm. the idea is then then those exports rebuild their economies so that they're more productive, right? And mm -hmm. and so they're not just sort of roped into, you know, just buying those same exports over and over, right? Mm -hmm. And and at least in the case of say, you know, Germany and France, that worked pretty well, right? Like. Um, they, they did become, you know, re regain their economic strength and um, and not, you know, like develop a domestic economy. You, um, yeah, you, it, I, it, I, I, I'm not sure that you can casually make the analogy between what happened in Western Europe and what would be happening if you tried to do these similar right, kind of right. programs in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are some... Um, horror stories out there talking about how you know the the green climate fund is not a perfect vehicle itself for solving this. Um, no, it's it you know, and I think that's probably going to be the major point of criticism of this proposal. Um, the I think that the problems with it are solvable, uh, and I can't think of a better vehicle uh, for this because the green climate fund. Um, Number one, it has just the capacity to deal with this. It has I, I can I can imagine the Green Climate Fund administering two trillion dollars a year in global development. I can't imagine. I, I, I'm trying to think of who else would do it. Like I don't want to give this money to the World Bank. The World Bank was actually <laughs> they were actually administering the Green Climate Fund at first. I believe that they're out of it now. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but I know that they were at first. And there are stories about you know they're doing things like building some dams in Lebanon uh, that's supposed to be climate mitigation stuff, but it's causing different environmental problems. Um, and so I. As I was saying, I know that the Green Climate Fund has its problems, but I think that it has the capacity to do this. And I also think that it has um, a degree of legitimacy that 
a lot of other vehicles for solving this don't have because number one, it's you know this is this is ultimately under the auspices of the United Nations, which is the closest thing to a global government as we have. Um, you know, this was an institution that Stalin and Mao were willing to work with on occasion. I think that American socialists should be willing to do it too in a state of emergency. <laughs> um, and the other the, – the thing that I really like about the Green Climate Fund is by international law, it is governed by a board that is 50-50 represented by the developing world. So – uh, by people on the board have to be from the developing world or from low-lying island nations. So this isn't just a situation where the United States, China, and France uh, are making all of the decisions about how it's spent. They have significant input. They have skin in the game here, and so they're the right people to be making this decision. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a great point. You know, I feel like this is the foundational problem with the IMF and the, mm-hmm. and the World Bank sort of Washington consensus shit is that you had these these institutions run entirely by rich countries mm-hmm. who are inevitably infected by the class interest of the, you know, elite in those countries. And then they're supposed to tell, you know, Zambia what to do when they get into some debt crisis. It's like, yeah. of course it fucking doesn't work out. I was... I was going to say, I just remembered where I was going with that. The reason that I brought them up, you have stories like I mentioned in Lebanon. There's also um, a real horror story I read a while back about uh, solar panels being sold. Maybe it was in South Africa. I remember it was was either in South Africa or Kenya, I believe. Um, But they're talking about... Uh, you have, you know, you have these villages that don't really have electricity, and they're being sold solar panels uh, instead of building a plant or whatever, which is good. That's a good situation, but it's turning into a really exploitive, <laughs> terrible situation because they're not bought. For one thing, they aren't buying these panels; they're renting them. Uh, and so, oh boy, yeah. And so, suddenly you have um, you know these citizens going into debt, uh, paying for green electricity to these private multinational corporations, and that's a legitimate concern with the Green Climate Fund. Um, I think that with this program, what. One thing that I don't talk about in this paper because I think it's just beyond the scope of the paper, but I am I'm working on a supplemental piece to this paper, which I'm going to put on uh, the blog carlbear.com. Um, the because we are investing so much money in this problem in the scenario. Of course, one of the things we're going to try to do is we're going to try to get other OECD nations to pay their share so that we can get to the two trillion. But another thing is if we have a, a government that's actually willing to pony up here and put the $680 billion on the line, I think that this government would also be willing to negotiate for better terms and have uh, the leverage to negotiate for better terms in how the Green Climate Fund is being run. So for example, I personally do not think that any of this money should be going into loans where the developing world is paying interest to pay us back. That's just absurd. Um, I think that you can make yeah. you know, I think that you can make arrangements where if we are putting money into tech, uh, with these investments uh, that companies shouldn't be then patenting those t- the technology that gets developed uh, from it and profiting off of that, I think that it should probably belong to either the international community or the affected country. Um, so there are, there are a lot of problems with the Green Climate Fund, but I don't see very much that you can't negotiate your way out of if you're coming to the table with the potential $680 billion a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like if you're willing to take that step, you ought to be uh, yeah, willing to, you know, cede some control and so on. It doesn't – um, Yeah. This, this – uh, this, 
the, the last question I had for you was was just touching on that thing you you just said about mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. and it's it strikes me you know looking at the emissions pathway that has been projected, um, it the the assumption correct me if I'm wrong is that that developing com- countries are going to follow you know the the standard emissions pathway, mm-hmm. and as you said that's that's you know due to agriculture and industry manufacturing you know producing concrete releases a lot of carbon Mm -hmm. dioxide um would another you know maybe as part of this this funding or 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 a different part of it could could we do some stuff in the u.s that would be a sort of manhattan project like stuff to be like okay we're going to figure out how to smelt steel with mm-hmm. w- without, without releasing any carbon yeah. and um then as you say you know whether it's a contract or the government's just doing it itself you know don't patent it or release a patent in the public domain so that uh developing countries when they're uh when they're climb you know slowly climbing up that that ladder of of uh you know wealth they can just hop right on to those low carbon technologies so they don't you know so that it becomes even without the the subsidies and so on that'd be like the cheapest way to do it would just mm-hmm. be to go with these new technologies yeah um you think that makes sense oh yeah i mean so you know people's policy project actually put out another paper um a while back uh it was the an innovation policy for the green new deal uh, by Dan Traficant and Ian Wells and or Wells and this came out in I guess just in April uh, and they propose um, sort of a, an approach to technological development in the United States uh, for you know for these kind of investments because yeah I think I'm I'm not somebody who is too worried about putting money into research for any kind of technological fix or that kind of thing. I think you have to try everything. Um, and, and so in this case, yeah, I think that it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. What you want to do is you want to, um, invest in the United States. You want to invest a lot of money in tech and you want to make as a condition for that money you want to fix some of the problems that are often associated with government subsidies so you just say hey we're going to uh, pay you to develop this but we get the patents you don't get the patents um you know there there are all kinds of different approaches and obviously if we develop um you know something that's really effective uh in dealing with climate change um then from there we you know you can export that to the rest of the world um i that's something that's already envisioned in aoc's proposal for the green new deal and it's kind of implicit in the way that elizabeth warren has talked about it in that proposal i think that from there you would want to be very careful about making sure that companies aren't profiteering off the rest of the world by exporting technology that US uh, government paid for um so that's a consideration there but yeah i would i i think another reason that our paper is conservative um in its price cost is we're assuming that there're going to be no silver bullets or any like really dramatic game-changing technological developments um moving forward the kind of basic assumption is just status quo technologically and then if we happen to come up with something great yeah great well um any any final comments before i let you go Hmm. We'll def- we'll definitely post a link to the paper and the good old carlbayer.com <laughs> web web zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my um my my web counter will go up. Uh the uh I I would just say, you know, I see this uh paper as not a comprehen- obviously not a comprehensive plan for dealing with the international development problem. I've talked about here um a couple of different potential challenges that are going to 
have to be fixed along the way. For example, the private sector trying to profiteer through uh, the Green Climate Fund, that kind of thing. There are a lot of different issues or we haven't even talked here about how this will be paid for if you want to talk about it in that way. Um, because you know we're spending $680 billion. There's going to instantly be all kinds of debt and deficit hawks complaining, okay, well, who are you going to tax for this then? And there are good progressive ways to do that. Socialists are going to have to make sure that this isn't paid for by cutting you know, social programs or raising taxes on the poor or anything like that. Um, so there are a lot of different problems that this paper does not address and does not try to solve. I'm going to talk about them a bit in the supplemental paper. But I would say when people are reading this, the two problems that they should be thinking about there is number one, how are we going to get people in the United States to recognize how much we have to invest here? Because that's the big political obstacle. If people do not acknowledge that that this is, we need to be putting money into this that has several orders of magnitude more than what we are right now, uh, we're just not going to make any progress. So people need to just think about the sheer scale of what this program needs to be. Uh, and they also need to think of how can we design a program like this in a way that doesn't instantly get defunded the next time the next Republican takes office or something like that. Um, I think there may be a temptation for Democrats to proceed, OK, well, you know, the solution to this is just to keep electing Democrats for the foreseeable future forever and then we don't have to hedge against the possibility of a Republican coming into office. But I don't think that's a responsible approach to take. I think that we have to build in mechanisms into our climate policy that make it very difficult uh, for the revenue or the um, funding to be interrupted by political instability at home. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with that. There, mm -hmm. you know, you can't you can't hold office forever. If history yep. teaches us anything, yep. um, all right, Carl, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, I'll let you go. But yeah, we'll link to the paper, and um, yeah, maybe see you on the podcast at <laughs> some future date. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Great talking to you, Ryan. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.